There he goes. One of God's own prototypes. A high-powered mutant of some kind never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live and too rare to die. Welcome to episode 33 of the Digital Freemason Podcast for the week of uh, around August 13th, 2006. I'm your host, Scott, and again, I'll be taking you along in my excellent adventure through the world of short Masonic educational papers. Many of these papers have been presented in my lodge, King George Lodge, number 59, in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Well, after the massacre of names, places, and events in the last episode about pillars and globes, I thought it would be best if I tackled the topic that contained easier words, seeing as I'm, uh, for the most part, a monosyllabic kind of guy. So in keeping with a bit of a down-under theme that seems to be surfacing here as of late, this piece comes from down-under as well, particularly from very worshipful brother Girdler of the United Masters Lodge in New Zealand, circa 1912. You know, as I progress through the world of Freemasonry, I find that there are very few aspects that we as Masons are truly obliged to keep secret. One of these few is the ancient penalties that are in the obligations of our degrees. Given the context of the time in which Freemasonry is thought to have originated, these symbolic penalties seem to make sense. You know, I'm amused by the people who are not involved in the craft with their perception of what these penalties might be. Even topping this group are the conspiracy people who think that these uh, penalties are still enforced in today's world. So it's good to take a look back at the uh, at what things were like at the time of that uh, these ancient penalties would have been uh, concocted and dreamed up and uh, become a part of the Freemasonry. And that's exactly what we're going to do with this piece, titled Ancient Penalties. To realize the significance of the ancient penalties, which are, at the present time, seem so crude, we must go back to the earliest known religion of the world. The periods of time that have passed since the Egyptian religion was part of the daily life of vast nations are so great that people have forgotten, and only of late years their history is being rediscovered from the tombs, temples, statues, writings that have been left behind. The religion of early Egyptians seems to have reached a solid foundation when they realized and taught that the chief god of mankind was the power of creation of life and endowed them with an immortal soul. In the Egyptian Book of the Dead, we are told that the god Osiris was the first divine king of Egypt, who reigned in a true human likeness. He civilized the Egyptians, instructed them in agriculture, gave them laws, and taught them to true that of true religion, which is the belief in a supreme god, the day of judgment, and the future life. After a long reign, Osiris was destroyed by the powers of evil, and descended into the underworld, where he lived and reigned as judge and king of the dead. The ancient belief was that everyone born on this earth, when his earthly pilgrimage had ended, must descend into the underworld by the gates of death, and pass the judgment seat to enter the spiritual world. This religion must have evolved when Egypt had reached a high state of civilization, as is proved by both their temples, cities, and books. The whole life and teaching of Osiris illustrates the eternal struggle which exists between good and evil. His death by the evil one, his descent into the underworld, his spiritual resurrection to judge and rule the spirits of the dead, and the conquest of the evil one by his son Horus, have been the foundation stone on which Freemasonry and every religion of the world has been built. 
the belief in the spiritual resurrection, the future state, and the day of judgment being the daily religion of the Egyptians, had the very important effect of rendering it necessary to preserve the body from decay. Because the Egyptian idea of the future life was not the present belief in a passive state of bliss, everlasting repose and joy. They expected to live as active a life in the world to come as they lived on earth, the difference being that they were in constant attendance on the god Osiris, helping to guide the destinies of those on earth, and being free from all the earthly troubles, dangers, and difficulties. They required food, clothing, houses, wives, and slaves, and it is to this belief that we owe our present knowledge of their customs, life, and history. When an Egyptian died, his soul left the body to appear before the judgment seat of Osiris. His body was given to a guild of embalmers to be mummified, or, if poor, to be preserved in chemicals, so as to last. The body was then returned to the relatives, who then had a funeral procession with songs and religious rites. Then, after speeches and a feast, the mummy was placed in a tomb with a supply of food, clothing, amulets, tablets of prayer, jewelry, and other belongings which have now been brought to light. When the soul, or ka, had passed the judgment seat, it had the power of returning to its body and made it its chief abiding place on earth. But it also had the power to wander about at will. If the body was not intact and food was not provided for it, the soul or spirit would return to its former home on earth and bring trouble to its friends and relations. If the soul did not pass the judgment seat and the heart, when weighed, was found wanting, it was destroyed by the devourer and the soul had no resting place, and then became a lost spirit. But it had a chance of redemption, for the Egyptians had a place of spiritual rebirth by purgation, the meaning which has survived in the modern term purgatory. It is described in the Egyptian ritual as the place of scourging and purifying, when the lost souls by hard work could be saved. The belief in a place of eternal punishment was not evolved until many ages after, the soul could not die, but there was no entrance into the upper world unless it was perfect. Those who had passed the judgment seat entered into blessedness, the only difference being that when in their earthly body their life was limited, in the spiritual life it was eternal. In the Book of the Dead it is said, Or enter the underworld the soul or spirit knocks at the doors, crying, Open ye, open ye, to divine spirits who come to cultivate the soils and grow foods. May a homestead in the fields of Eden be given to me. Let the god Amsu, the divine husbandman, give me the ground to till. Let the god of the green things, as the giver of abundance, open his arms to me. I know the place where, the plow, where to plow the earth, mow the corn, and car collect the harvest. This life of work and perfect enjoyment is still the religion of the vast majority of the present inhabitants of today's world. Only a few weeks ago the paper reported a pathetic edict from the Chinese emperor saying, The rebellion has so distressed his ancestors that they could not eat their food, and if it continued, terrible calamities would fall on the nation. In the Egyptian underworld, as they require food and clothing, so they require houses and temples. Petrie says, It was the Egyptian custom to place Masonic deposits of miniature model tools and plans under the foundations of their temples probably intended for the souls of the builders to carry on repairs in the heavenly mansions. 
The ancient penalties were therefore founded on Egyptian belief that the soul or spirit had no resting place if the body was destroyed or mutilated. The chief object of the ancient penalties was the total destruction of part or whole of the body so that the soul could have no resting place and would have to wander in space naked and starving. If we think of the fanciful ferocity with which the older natives of India, Asia, and Africa resent any slights to their religion, and watch the bitter religious wars continuously going on in Europe, we can realize that the intensely religious Egyptians would have thought of no punishment being too great for those who were false to their vows or traitors to their religion and country. This belief is so deeply fixed in the human mind that even at the present time in Christian Europe, the graves of the dead are opened and the bodies burnt and the ashes are scattered. In the wars that are going on at the present time in various parts of the world, the mutilation of the bodies of the killed and wounded is a daily practice. The mutilation of the dead is not done from cruelty or brutality, but from the religious teaching and the belief that if they destroyed one who was not of the true faith or was a traitor, they prevented his soul from acquiring happiness because they destroyed the home that linked it to earth, and the more infidels they destroyed, the greater was their reward in their own heaven. If we glance at the condition of Europe, where modern Freemasonry was evolved, we can realize some of the forces which guided the compilers of our ancient ritual. The Spanish Inquisition was at the height of its glory. The various sects of the Christian nations were all busy burning each other's followers at the stake, curiously enough with the object of saving the soul by destroying the body, reversing the ancient belief. At the same time, the whole civilized world was paying tribute to the Turks and Algerians who always had about 20,000 Christian slaves that they had captured from European vessels, and who, when the tribute did not satisfy them, put English, American, French, and other councils in chain, brutally beat them, and sold them as slaves. When a European ransom ransomed one lot, they captured another one. Mr. Eaton, who was the American consul in Tunis, who was sent in about 1800 to Algiers in charge of four vessels as arrears to the tribute due from the United States, said, Can any man believe that the Bay of Algiers had seven kings of Europe, two republics, and a whole continent paying tribute to him? Frequent references were made in the literature of that day to the number of brethren who had been captured and sold as slaves, and their rescue by members of the craft amongst the natives. Vows in such times were made and carried out in the grim earnest for a traitor who had the lives of too many in his mercy. The compiles of the ritual, having the old ancient penalties before them, and as their ingenuity could not devise anything more terrible, they were continued, but their symbolism was lost. In the volume of the sacred law, we are told that loss of certain parts of the body mean loss of salvation. In our order, except in the New Zealand constitution, any mutilation means the exclusion of the candidate. We are in more peaceful times, and as such are using ancient penalties without any thoughts of their origins. For many years after I joined the craft, the only information I could gain was that they were ancient landmarks and must not be touched, or else that it was traditional history. I therefore trust my paper and the discussion it must call forth will help the brethren for I am convinced that lodges are not doing their duty when candidates are admitted for their fees and are given the right to attend ceremonies they cannot understand, and by rituals which are beautiful but convey no meaning unless explained. May I mention that there, that there stands in our library books showing the origins of nearly all of our ceremonies. 
there is one thing wanting, the energy to read and the energy to teach. So there's very worshipful brothers Girdler's piece on the ancient penalties and an idea as to where their source may be. As I said, it was written in 1912, and it's uh, it's interesting to reflect back and learn a little bit about what what the world was like at that time when he talks about uh, graves being dug up and the bodies massacred and burned and the ashes spread and about all the bad things that are happening in Europe and what I guess it was about another oh, 30 years before 35 years before things really settled down in Europe at that point and hopefully none of that stuff is happening anymore uh, can't really say whether or not that's happening in the in the Middle East and all the other troubled areas that are floating around so I'll leave you with that and I will be talking to you on the next time so until next time Again, I'm your host, Scott, and I hope you hope you've enjoyed our little journey together. If you'd like to email me any comments or suggestions for future topics, the email address is podcast at kinggeorgelodge.com. And drop on by our website, www.kinggeorgelodge.com. Until next time, keep the shiny side up.